All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we'll finish up this Advent series. Um, and so uh, we will look at the story. Again, remember, one of Luke's things is to tell the story of individuals. And the reason that that's a powerful thing is that sometimes individuals can kind of get lost in the larger story. Now, it's, it's not an either or. It really is a both and. God is at work in nations and in cultures and in movements, but he's also very much at work in the lives of individuals. And he uses the effort of individuals um, to do amazing things. Um, if any of you have read the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, it's a brilliant example of what just a handful of people can do to change not only the lives of individuals who are innocent, uh, but on death row and, and facing the death penalty, but also to change a system. Uh, if you don't know, the state of Florida at one time had more children, that means under the, people under the age of 18 and really under the age of 15, on death row and pending actual um, death sentences than anywhere else in the U.S. Alabama was a very close second. And so they worked to change some of these laws and things to actually help um, preserve the lives of people who actually were innocent. It's amazing how many people uh, are actually innocent who wind up on death row, especially in the South. And so, um, so there's amazing examples of people doing things, and that's very encouraging to me because I don't know about you, but it can all feel at times like there's just not much difference that can be made if we're not careful. Like it can feel lost. Uh, my wife and I went to Louisiana, uh, to, to the city of Slidell, and then went into New Orleans this past week. And if you've never seen the World War II Museum, it is amazing. Um, it's five large buildings. You could never look at the whole thing in a day, even if you tried really hard. We only were able to make it to the Pacific Theater. The place was just crowded. My grandfather was in the group of Marines that hit Iwo Jima, and then I had a great uncle who was a flamethrower in the Philippines. So I, I really wanted to see and have not read much about the Pacific Theater um, and it was overwhelming. Uh, it was just um, the, the amount of suffering and the amount of uh, the ability that we have to destroy one another and the capability that we just have for hatred. And yet, also too, on the other side of that, the capability to do amazing things to change people's lives and histories and how the Americans uh, worked incredibly hard and got ready incredibly fast for war they were not prepared for and really had no intention of getting involved in. Um, and were able to do these incredible things. And so that story was told all throughout. And that was, what was neat about the way they did it is you had the kind of the big story, but as you walk through, there were these little individual plaques and these telephones where you could listen to the stories of individuals, people who individually made a significant difference in terms of the war, in terms of certain circumstances. And so it was a brilliant mix of this idea that we see really that God started, that it is both about the big picture and the small picture. Luke's gospel gives us much of that small picture. It's also amazing how just upside down the kingdom really is, right? And how Jesus doesn't really fit at all with, with even what we think a Savior ought to be. We can, we can give those who are of Jewish descent a hard time for not accepting him, but I'm not sure we accept him. I'm not sure we accept him as he really is. We oftentimes make him look more like us, right? Um, there's a great quote by Anne Lamont, if your God hates the same people you do, it may not be God. Um, and so Jesus has this amazing way of going after people at the margins. God has this amazing way of loving those who seem like they are completely and utterly out, right? Which is all of us, truthfully. Right? None of us are gussied up enough to warrant being here. 
Um, I know we'd like to think we have that capability, but we just aren't. And for those of you who don't know what the word gussied means, that just means dressed up a little bit. I am reading Hillbilly Elegy, so that may be where that came from. Um, and so, so we, can't, we can't ever see ourselves as better than. We just can't. And that's actually good news. To th- that takes a huge load off of us, doesn't it? Right? To try to constantly maintain that you are better than or that you are worthy is absolutely exhausting. Trust me. I, I know, and I'm sure you do too. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he says, I'm not asking you to be worthy. I will make you worthy. What I'm asking you to do is join the story and help tell others about how they too can be worthy. And that's what we're going to see from Anna, a prophetess, which makes us Presbyterian polity people a little nervous, the story of Anna, the prophetess. And so as we look into this, don't miss those things. Don't lose those things. And we're also going to see yet again, Luke loves pointing out where the Holy Spirit is at work. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit at work again and the richness of what this is. So as we step into this text, what we have to understand, uh, this is the key truth, is that the coming of Jesus will move some to praise in peace and others to stumble in angry opposition. Now, just so you know, that's still true today. There are those of you who are angered by Jesus' willingness to forgive certain kinds of people. Some of you are angry. It just makes you angry that he would let certain people get up and share his word, that he would call some to be pastors. Some of you are angered that he hasn't called you. Some of you are angry that, that he hasn't done more for you. You feel like you've earned the right to be in a different position. Some of us are just angered by grace. Some of us are angered by law. Some of us are angered by the whole thing. And we try to work it out in some sort of mathematical, systematic way, and Jesus just doesn't seem concerned to fit in the kinds of things that we can come up with, we who look through a glass half-darkly. And so the coming of Jesus will move some to praise and peace and others to stumble in angry opposition. Now let me ask you this. What are you looking for that is actually going to bring you peace? Let me ask a different question, actually, before we get to that question. How many of you would say you live in perfect peace right now? The perfect is a a tough qualifier, isn't it? If I had gone like 25%, like gave you a percentage, maybe we'd have saw more hands. But the truth of the matter is none of us really at all times live in perfect peace. Now, now some of us, more times than not maybe, and that's a wonderful gift from the Lord our God, but, but what are you waiting for that's going to actually finally bring peace? Uh, I remember when I was uh, um, uh, going into college and I needed a third job. And, and this job came open for UPS. And it was a, it was a twilight shift, which is, uh, I think, if I remember right, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. or some, something awful like that. And, and it, it paid eight bucks an hour. And I was like, this job is going to change my life. And it did. But not in the way that I thought. It didn't bring the prosperity. I don't know, but I must not have been good at math. I must not have worked out how $8, four hours a night really doesn't make you rich, as it turns out. 32 bucks a night, once you do the takeaway, it's like 16 bucks a night. And you're, you just work like, just, you get destroyed. But I just remember thinking, if I could just get this job, it'll make everything better. You may say, well, that was the fantasies of a goofy young kid. I, we all still think that way, I think. That if we could just get to point B, if we could just get beyond the holidays, some of you thought, which I think is just such a 
It just pains me for us to think that way. If we could just get through being with family, if we could just make it through one more meal, if we could just get to that distant shore, we'd be okay. So what are we waiting for that could bring us peace? Or has in some measure peace already come? And it's being worked out. And we've been invited into the working out of that peace because the kingdom has come, because Christ has accomplished what needs to be accomplished. Now granted... All things are not yet made new, and I don't believe we can make all things new. I, don't, I think we need Jesus to return, thus the reason we keep having communion, because we're pointing forward, not just back. But what are you thinking is going to bring you peace, and what are you investing in to help you actually have that peace? Because if we put our stock in the wrong thing, it's amazing how despair works, isn't it? That when that thing doesn't give us what we thought, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a job, whether it's getting into school, or whether it's getting into a certain position, it's amazing how none of that seems to ultimately satisfy us. And yet again and again and again we keep trying, don't we? And what we're going to see here is that Simeon and Anna both are going to teach us that consolation has come. There's nothing to necessarily wait for except the return of Christ to make all things new, to finish what he started, what God has started so long ago. And so we have a confidence. We can actually have great hope. We can actually participate in things like Brian Stevenson did in Just Mercy and like so many have done throughout history in the name of Jesus to, to change things over the long haul. We, we, have the, we have the brilliant opportunity to be, of all words, patient and endurance because of what Jesus has done. So, as we step into this, have in your mind and be thinking about what have you looked to for peace that has failed you? What are you looking to for peace that's probably not going to give you what you hoped? And how can you look to Jesus and how can you uh, understand your union with Christ and your salvation in Him and your redemption in a deeper and richer way? If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, we'll start with Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's pause there for a second because this is kind of an interesting interlude in the way that Luke's been telling the story. Now Luke it does some interesting things where he keeps kind of Mary and Joseph and Jesus uh, in the, in the uh, integral, integral spaces between the other stories. And so the shepherds have gone and they've gone back praising. Jesus has been circumcised and he's been named um, after the eighth day. And now Mary is going into the temple, Mary and Joseph both, to fulfill the law in Leviticus 12, 6 through 8, which requires a, a purification rite or a sin offering uh, on her behalf, uh, some 40-odd days after she has had the baby. And they're also to consecrate Jesus, which is according to Exodus 13, and then two different passages in Numbers, Numbers 3 and Numbers 18. It just means that, that they recognize that Jesus was to be set apart, consecrated unto the Lord, and this has everything to do with the firstborn being dedicated to him, if you think back to Egypt when the death of the firstborn was such a horrific event for the Egyptians and even for some of the Jewish folks. 
And so she's keeping the law. And what's interesting is her offering is the offering of the poor. It says that there also ought to be a lamb that's offered, but if you're poor and you can't, then that which has been stated, the turtle doves and pigeons, is what you can give. So what that tells us about Mary is a couple of things. One, that she and Joseph were poor. They were people at the margins. Two, is that neither Luke nor Mary think that she is holy. She required a sin offering just as everyone else does. She even recognizes that she will need salvation from this baby who has come. She doesn't understand all of that worked out just yet. But what she does recognize is that she is not above the law. And neither actually is Jesus. Jesus obeys the law in the same way. We didn't get into that so much with his circumcision and these other things. But none of them are above the law. Listen to what Robert H. Stein, New Testament scholar, says about this. He says, that Mary offered a dove as a sin offering, according to Leviticus 12.6, for her purification indicates that the mother of God's son also needed the forgiveness and redemption that her son brought. So it's really important to us is that we recognize not even Mary sees herself as that set apart. We dealt with the sum in her song, the Magnificat, where she says that she will be blessed over the generations, but what that really meant had more to do with her salvation than her being acknowledged or prayed to. So the question that I have for us in just this brief passage, if Mary obeyed the law, if Jesus obeys the law, do you trust the law of God to be for your good and worthy to be obeyed? Now, if you're wicked like me, you're thinking, oh, so I can't eat shellfish anymore, you jerk. No, no, that's, <laughs> if you've read further than Leviticus, which I hope you have, um, the story's really good after that, uh, the, you will discover that the law to be obeyed is twofold. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, which I recognize to be incredibly hard in and of themselves. I'd rather just not eat shellfish and be holy. And I love shrimp. I was in Louisiana, for crying out loud. And so, here we have a challenge to us. Is what God said worthy to be obeyed? Is what God said what is ultimately best for us? Is what God says the way to true flourishing and life more abundant? So if you come up with two really good resolutions for this new year, which hopefully will make it somewhere past February. Two would be, Lord, would you help me to love you more and to understand how much you love me over this next year so that I could love you more? And would you help me to love my neighbor more? Would you help me to love those who are difficult to love because confessionally, I am difficult to love? Susan can tell you, I ain't easy. And some of you know that. I'm just not, and neither are you. None of us are easy to love because of our, all of the tangled Gordian knot that we are. Even as simple as we think we are, no, we're not. You're just quieter about it. That's different. And so, so we have an opportunity over this next year to focus on those two things in a way that hopefully will create genuine change in us. And one of the aspects for those two things to come to pass, again, and I want to reiterate this, is that, and this is an emphasis for us as a church, is to grow in prayer. You cannot grow in love of God if you don't talk to Him. You can't grow in loving your neighbor if you don't talk to them either. And you're going to need help. You're going to need to pray for the Lord to help you love them and be specific about it. 
And would that we as a church, do you have any idea what that would look like for the whole of our church to grow in those two things alone? Do you have any idea what it, how it would impact our worship and how it would impact our role in our neighborhoods and communities and jobs and all of those kinds of things? Just those simple, simple prayers and simple focuses. Yet I recognize their complexity. So do you trust that in Jesus saying that those two things were the greatest thing that any of us could focus on, all the law and the prophets hang on those things, do you trust that those are in fact the greatest and highest good for you? Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 25 through 35 and we'll see a new character in Simeon. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So what we have here is a, yet another character, Simeon, in the sovereignty of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit is able to be in the temple when the Christ child comes in. Right? And the, and the Spirit has promised that he would see this, this Christ child before he dies. He's been waiting. We have no idea how long. And he composes this song, which the church is called the Nunc Dimittis, and has been sung for centuries and we sang a version of it this morning in the offering song i don't know why it's called an endemitus i think that's latin for something good actually simeon's song and so uh, so it sounds weird to say it actually it doesn't sound as as, as uh, exciting but this song if you think about it is just it's beautiful in what it is that simeon is confessing he says lord now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word now think about that for a second. What if that was what you could say at the end of your life? Well, we, we don't like thinking about death. We're not a culture that likes thinking about death, which is odd given its uh, constancy in our midst. But how amazing would it be if we could say, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, and we're not going to be in the temple and hold the Christ child. But there's a lot of ways in which this could be true of our lives. And how, how would this come to pass? What would this look like? What would it take for us to get to this place where we could say these words? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. How many of you have seen the Lord's salvation? You witnessed it in your own life as you were transformed both outside and in. You've witnessed it in the lives of your family and in others as you've seen their lives transformed both outside and in. Messy though it still is, we have beheld the salvation of the Lord. 
And what would it look like for us to be able to recognize that this is for all peoples? This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promised in Genesis 12. The Abrahamic covenant still looms so large, and yet we know so little about it. And we don't trust it as we ought. That the intent is for every tongue, tribe, and nation to be represented. How amazing it is that God can reach so far and so deep and so diverse a people. And we've seen him do it again and again. He is faithful in world missions. We've heard testimony from India, and we've heard testimony from Thailand, and we've heard testimony from lots of places as our missionaries that we support report back to us of the things that the Lord is doing in their midst. Would that we would long more for that. Remember, this comes out of Isaiah 49, which we read, or 43, which we, call, we read as part of the call to worship. This has been the intent the whole way long is to bring back together that which is separated. Think about the amazing passage in Ephesians 2 where it talks about Jesus bringing down the wall that has separated people, making one people out of those who were divided. Now let me ask you this. If that's true, then why do we depart from each other so easily? If, if part of what Jesus, if a major portion of what Jesus came to do is to break down that which divides us. And this is true for us as a church. This is true for us as families. This is true for us as friends. It's true for us as co-workers. Why is it so easy for us to break fellowship and to never speak to one another again? What is so large that eclipses the cross that could divide us? It's interesting when you put it in those terms, Right? And some of you may be thinking, yeah, but that's on the meta, right? That's, that was a, he's talking on the meta. Yeah, but Luke's talking in the individuals. Luke's getting down into the story. This is about between people. It's not just about people groups. Don't forget Matthew 18. So why is it we can so easily break fellowship with one another without a fight? Without fighting for the Lord's glory instead of fighting for our way? And what would it look like if we as a church took that serious? What would it look like if we took that serious in our families? Many of you may have felt the strain that Christmas brings. That all the holidays seem to bring into our families, but Christmas in particular. That, that there were people who weren't there that should have been there. There were people who were there that felt like they shouldn't have been there. There's all this strange tension that can sometimes creep in like some sort of mist or fog and blinds us to what the Lord is doing. And would that we would be agents and ambassadors of reconciliation to push back that fog and to be able to say, like Simeon, at some point, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And Simeon also brings out that Jesus' coming will bring a sword. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 10, 34. It's a passage that has disturbed us for a long, long time. That for the one who's supposed to be able to bring together, there's also a sense in which he brings division. And that basically that division will be pure. It will be pure. You're either, you're either of Christ or you are against him. And the goal is to not have many be against him. But there will be those who fall who stumble on the chief cornerstone, who are broken because of the coming of Christ. And Simeon even says, as the parents marveled, and after he blessed them, I can't imagine as a parent 
what it was that Mary heard when he said, even your heart will be pierced also. There's a lot of conjectures of what that may mean. The assumption is that it has to do with her witnessing her son be crucified. How hard would that be? How much would that break us? Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. He says, Jesus said he came to bring a sword. Simeon said so too. Do we see what that means? It means that we will get hostility for Jesus' sake. It means we will have many painful struggles in the Christian life. Christmas then teaches us that Christians should not give in to self-pity, nor should they be short-sighted because the ultimate results of these conflicts are deeper peace and joy. Now given that there will be conflict outside, we should be so much more sensitive to protecting against conflict on the inside of the church. We will have enough to battle if we go and share the gospel in the world, trust me. We don't need to be fighting on two fronts. We don't need to be fighting one another. We don't need to be critiquing and, and, and tearing down and, and, and seeking to depart over silly things. We must recognize the depth of the bond that we have because of what Christ has done. My question to you, though, is much like the what was said to Mary, has the Lord ever pierced your heart with His Word? Has His Word ever just pierced you? It has me. In fact, recently, there's a passage uh, from Jeremiah where he basically says, listen, if you can't hang with what's going on on the porch, you definitely can't run with the horses. Like if you're going to let just basic critique, basic peccadillo drag you down and cause you to think about selling insurance, how are you ever going to do what you're called to do in the world? Because the world will not show you any grace at all. And that has pierced me as a pastor because it helped me to kind of refocus and rethink, what in the world, why would I let these, these small things mounting as they often do, they usually come in clusters, I want to let those things cause me to turn my gaze from so great a calling and so awesome a privilege. And the question for me is, how did you respond when the Word pierced you? How did you respond? Did you push away from the Lord or did you draw nearer to Him? Because He's the only one who can heal the piercing. Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word pierces even down to the joints and the marrow. And if the Word is not doing that to you at some point in time, I have to question what you're reading. Are you understanding what you're reading? Because it is a piercing thing. Then the story changes from Simeon to Anna, the prophetess, who's just mentioned in this one place in just a few verses. Let's read Luke 2, 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now Luke turns his final focus during the birth narrative to this interesting figure that we don't know a whole lot about, but it's Anna the prophetess. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Remember, God has been silent, essentially prophetically, for 400 years. 
from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the Gospels. Now, for those of you who are keeping score, John really had the first in utero prophecy when he leapt for joy when, when Mary showed up and had only been pregnant for a few days. But isn't it interesting that this upside-down nature of the kingdom that a woman would be chosen to be one of the first to actually verbally prophesy of the coming Christ? We don't talk about this a whole lot because it kind of makes us wonder about some things. Polity and such. But what's beautiful about it is, is that it's not about that. What it is about is God's love for all of His creation. And that this woman who had been faithful for years and years and years and years has the opportunity and the joy and the gift to be able to go and tell others about this Christ who has come. Notice Anna, in recognizing that the Lord has come, she responds immediately with gratitude and praise and worship just as everybody else in the story has done. Right? When Elizabeth learns that Mary carries the Lord, what does she do? Immediately she goes into praise and worship. What happens when, when Zechariah's mouth is finally loosed with the birth of John the Baptist and all that it means? Praise and worship. What does Mary do when she begins to realize what is going on in her womb? She composes a song, praise and worship. What do the shepherds do? As soon as they hear of this king who has come, who is wrapped in swaddling clothing in a manger somewhere, as the sky rips open with a worship service, they too join the chorus. What does Simeon do? What does this cloud of witnesses do? As they know that Christ has come, they share the story, they give praise, they give gratitude. And what can we learn from that? See, every week we have the opportunity to come together and to behold yet again some aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. It is coming together. Now, I get that there's a ton of different styles. I get that there's a ton of different flavors. I get that most of you don't like uh, but a percentage of what we do, okay? I, I get that, and I understand that. If you ever heard the music I listen to, you'd wonder about my sanity. I, I don't listen to anything that, that makes sense. And so, so I get that we're all on different levels there, but does that change who Jesus is? Does that change what we've gathered to do? Does, that, does the style and the flavor make Jesus go, I, I can't abide with those people? That Josh, he can't keep his guitar in tune. Cameron, he can't carry a note, save his life. I hope his microphone's off. Spirit, take care of that. No, he joins with us despite our stammering tongues and our pitiful creative efforts at times. He is faithful to do what he said he would do. Why is it that we struggle so much with gratitude? Has salvation become so mundane and banal to us? that we can't appreciate week after week. I get it. It's a long journey. I get it that it ain't always exciting. I get it that we don't always hit a home run. I get it that you stayed up too late last night. I get it that you ate Mexican food and it's, it's talking to you. I get all that, right? But is Jesus not greater than those things still? And, and why is it that we can leave out of here and our greater concern, instead of whether or not God was glorified, is whether or not we were moved, as if we were God. And so, so what can we learn from these folks? 
It's any time that you have to behold the Christ, which is any time you open God's Word, any time you step before the throne in prayer, any time you come together for worship. Do you come with gratitude? And if not, is it the style that's the problem? Is it the singing of a song to the tune of old Anxion the problem? Is that what keeps Jesus at bay? Or is there something deeper still that we ought to consider and ponder within ourselves? Is the insufficiency within instead of without? Now granted, I get, if we were doing speed metal worship up here, it'd be tough. I'm with you on that. But if the words are true, can we not behold again the Christ? Can we not do that as people united together for this purpose? Fallible, messy, but redeemed. And can we do that in such a way that causes us to love God more and to love our neighbor more in a deeper way because Christ called us to do it. Knowing that the worship style that's going to be in heaven will be perfect, but it probably won't sound anything like anything we do. It'll probably be utterly alien and foreign to us. And yet, we will join in the chorus. So, what is it that moves you? As Josh said, I mean, again, I think we have to ask if, if Advent comes and goes and we just, all right, Luke 1 and 2, got it, moving on. What do we have next? And we don't pause and say, how was it that they were so moved? Now understand, every one of the folks who are in this story who are moved seem to know some part of the word of God as it was they, as they had it at that point. They knew what they were looking for. Do you know what you're looking for? Do you know what you're looking toward? Do you know to whom you should look? And what is it that actually moves you enough that you would actually share this story with someone else? That you would invite them into this story and say, you got to come see this. you got to come be a part of this. And if not, why are you here? There's a lot of other really good churches that preach the gospel in this town. And if you would not invite someone into the story here, please, by all means, let's chat. Let's get you where you can. Because more important than you uh, being satisfied is whether or not you're actually doing the thing that you were created to do, which is make disciples who make disciples. I know that seems harsh. And you, you may say, well, we'll just wait and see how, if, if you train wreck and somebody else comes in and does something different. Well, okay, we can wait. You're free to do that too. But what moves you? And if you're not moved, why? Great question to think through on the Sabbath day and to ask the Lord to show you in your heart. So what three things do we gain from this text? One, no one is above God's law. No one. Two, the coming of Christ will, will move some to praise and peace and others to stumble in angry opposition. Three, the coming of Christ should move us to give thanks and share the story with others. If it doesn't, we need to do some soul searching. We need to do that in community instead of hidden. We need to help each other to grow in our affection, not only for Christ, but for each other. And would that that would be our greatest desire is to see not the church continue to be divided because, again, we're presuming some freedoms that I think are going to change in our lifetime, certainly in our children's lifetime, that we cannot take for granted.
And we need to use the time that we have. We need to redeem the time that we have while we have it so that we can say at the end of our lives, Lord, you are letting your servants depart in peace according to your word. So as we turn to the table, we recognize that the only means by which we can do any of this, the only means by which we can love God, the only means by which we can love one another is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If he doesn't do what he does and we are not reminded of it, we do not have the strength. We are not Herculean near enough to pull ourselves up far enough to love each other. We're not Herculean enough to even love God, who's difficult to love sometimes, if we're honest, because of his invisibility and the fact he doesn't speak audibly as often as he used to, it seems. And the fact that he gave us this long story to try to interpret instead of just a pamphlet with a list of rules that we would have thrown in the trash anyway. And so we come to this table as beggars in search of the nourishment necessary to do the thing that God has called us to do, recognizing we cannot do it on our own, we cannot do it as individuals. And so as you take this morning, there's, um, there's some things you need to consider. One, if you're not a believer, this table is not for you. Let the elements pass by you. You need to just recognize that, that this, is, this isn't lunch. This isn't going to help you in any way, shape, or form. You must first have accepted Christ as your Savior and recognize yourself as sinner in order for these elements to truly nourish as opposed to potentially curse. Two, if you for any reason are under church discipline, I don't know of anybody in that category, but everybody gets all stirred up when I say this. I just have to say it, okay? I don't know of anybody in this category. But if you are, for some reason, under church discipline, be honor that until it's reconciled because God came, sent Jesus for things to be reconciled. If you need help in that, then please see one of us, the elders, myself, and we'll be happy to walk with you through that. But the third person is the, the one that sometimes is the trickiest who ought not take at this table. And that's the person who has deemed others or someone else as unforgivable. That makes you God, by the way. And God doesn't need this table. And so if you think you can declare someone else as unworthy of redemption, and you've done that in your heart and mind, then you don't want to mess with this. This is too low for you. But if you recognize that you are broken and in need of salvation, and you're in some sort of process, and you're hopeful for reconciliation or redemption, you desperately need this table. Please do not get that confused. Just because you're there's something that's not yet fully brought back together doesn't mean you can't take at the table. As long as you're willing to work through that process and you're praying to that end, you need the broken body. You need the shed blood of Christ. If any confusion about that, again, please see one of us and we'll be happy to walk you through that so you understand. But for everybody else, for everybody else who knows that they're a sinner, that they are insufficient, that they are truly marginal, in the kingdom sense, and that Jesus has come for you, you, you've got to take. This will nourish you and nourish your faith so that you can continue into this new year to grow in the two greatest things, love of God and love of neighbor. The elders would come forward. Tim, you're in. <clears throat> On the night that Jesus had the last supper, but it was the first Lord's Supper with his disciples. He took something so common, something they were so familiar with, 
and something they would encounter again and again and again. He wanted to make sure that they would not forget. He wanted them to always do this in remembrance of him. He took the bread and he held it up to him. He said, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And the beauty of that, that they didn't fully understand at the time and that we have the benefit of fully understanding now, is that all of the guilt, all of the shame, sin, past, present, and future goes into that breaking. And not only that, but the fullness of God's wrath for those things also goes into that breaking of that body. And in Him taking that breaking on Himself, it means that you and I would not ever have to feel that kind of brokenness. Amen? So as you take the bread, would you meditate on this great gift that Christ has given to you, this breaking that He endured that you will never taste of. Many of you have suffered a significant amount in this life, as have I, but we've never known this kind of breaking. And this affords us the ability to, to be able to someday hopefully say that we, your servants, Lord, can depart in peace because of your word. So, if you would, when you receive it, hold. We'll take together as family at the end. Let me pray for this element.